You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Hello and welcome. Uh, Welcome to the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Thank you also for braving the storm we are supposed to have tonight and coming to tonight's talk. Um, My name is Philip Lyon. I am the Managing Director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies here at the Jackson School. Um, And tonight's event is brought to you by the Ellison Center, but also in collaboration with the Center for Jewish Studies here at the Jackson School and the Holocaust Center for Humanity in downtown Seattle. We should also thank the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. for financially making Dr. Newman's visit to campus uh, tonight possible. Um, And now allow me to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Daniel Newman. Daniel Newman is the program manager of the Initiative for the Study of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union at the Joseph, Jack, and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, He holds a PhD in modern European history from UCLA, so he's a West Coaster of sorts, Um, And his research interests include Russian and Soviet history, comparative legal history, and the history of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, of course. Uh, Dr. Newman has presented his work at numerous international conferences, and his most recent work was published in the Soviet and Post-Soviet Review. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, all the way from DC, Dr. Daniel Newman. Thank you, Phil, for the introduction, and thank you to the Ellison Center, and a special thank you to Valentina Petrova for making all of this possible. Um, and thanks to all of you for braving what I hear is a typhoon, <laughs> which from what I understand is completely out of the ordinary here in Seattle, but I wouldn't know as this is my first time here. But thank you all for coming. Um, for those of you who have a more intimate knowledge of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, uh, you might find some of this to be a little bit remedial. I am going to try and go over just some major points, primarily aimed at those of you in the audience who don't know very much about what happened with the Holocaust in the area of the former Soviet Union. I'm going to divide my talk into three major areas. First is geography, and this is going to be very tricky. Don't worry if you're a little bit confused at first, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask. I will try to make uh, it as clear as possible what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about the Holocaust in the former Soviet Union, because the former Soviet Union is malleable, right? We could be talking about the Soviet Union in 1939, according to the 1939 borders. It might include Lithuania with the 1940 borders, or we might be talking about the Soviet Union in the post-war period. All of these have different borders. The second major thing we're going to be talking about are victims. And we're going to talk about, I believe, six different groups of victims, not just Jews. And the reason why we're not only going to be talking about Jews, even though this is about the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, is because when we talk about what happened during the war in the Soviet Union, it's important to note that for those individuals from the former Soviet Union, their knowledge of the war and what happened mostly includes what happened to not Jews what happened to Soviet citizens, what happened to forced laborers, what happened to Red Army soldiers, 
um, and possibly also what happened to Jews. So when we're talking about this narrative, it's important to include as many groups as we possibly can. And finally, we're going to talk about something which is contentious even today, the Holocaust in the area of the former Soviet Union in memory and in history. Uh, it's a contended narrative, and it's a narrative that you will find in the areas of the former Soviet Union from Ukraine to Russia have many different facets, uh, many different streams of argumentation that run through it, and I'll try to clarify some of those here tonight. And then at the end, we should have an ample period for questions and answers. So that's briefly what we're going to be going over in the next 30 minutes to an hour. We'll see how it goes. So geography. This is the best map I've been able to find of the geography of the former Soviet Union on the eve of the war. So our map on the left has the Soviet Union in 1939, and our map on the left has the Soviet Union in 1940. In August of 1939, Vyacheslav Molotov and Joachim von Ribbentrop, who were the respective foreign ministers of the Soviet Union and Germany, signed a pact, an agreement. It came in two parts. The first part's not often talked about. It had to do with an economic agreement. The second part, which is the more known part, and the part we're going to be talking about here, was a non-aggression pact that was supposed to last for 10 years between the Soviet Union and between Germany. We all know that that did not exactly keep for very long. Now, the main focus of this pack was to divide this area that we're looking at over here. Actually, I have a laser pointer. I can use this. Perfect. This area here into demarcated zones that would be controlled by the Soviet Union, that would be controlled by Germany, and that would be in this unclear area where there would be spheres of influence. So this red part here is the Soviet Union before the pack, okay? This yellow line over here is supposed to be the planned borders after the pact. So when we talk about the former Soviet Union here, according to this pact, we're splitting Poland in half, half to Germany, half to the Soviet Union. Estonia and Latvia are supposed to go to the Soviet Union as a sphere of influence. Lithuania is supposed to remain as the German sphere of influence. Why is this important? At this very level, so when we're talking about, say, what the Russian experience was during the Holocaust, it's going to differ then automatically, the Latvian experience, because Latvia wasn't under, so under the Soviet Union until 1939, right? Whereas in this area here, we had Soviet domination for approximately 20 years up until this point. This area of Russia was under the influence of the Soviet Union. This area here in Poland wasn't. So just to try and get the reason why I'm going over this, you have a number of different cultures, a number of different states, right? We're not talking about one uniform experience. This is what the actual territorial changes were. This yellow line right here is what was supposed to be planned. And then what ended up happening is, hope this was clear, this ended up being the division. Right? So the Soviet Union ended up occupying Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania by 1940. Lithuania was supposed to be under German uh, hegemony, but it wasn't. It ended up going to Soviet uh, power. And the reason why was because 
In September of 1939, when Poland was invaded by Germany on the west, and then not long out thereafter by the Soviet Union in the east, this agreement ended up being somewhat uh, abrogated. This was the reality on the ground by the end of September. And so even though there was this agreement here on the left, according to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, de facto, this ended up being what the borders were. And it was just a result of where the armies lay at the end of the invasion. As you can imagine, Lithuania was none too happy to end up under Soviet domination. Um, it's been an ongoing point of contention that the Lithuanian, uh, Lithuania was not supposed to be under the Soviet Union. It was supposed to be under German hegemony. They considered themselves to be far more a part of Germany than anything Soviet. There had been long-held uh, uh, dislike for the Russian Empire that they had been under previously. And so it was particularly contentious in this area here, Lithuania, against Soviet power once they were taken over in 1940. Also geographically, and this holds a lot more resonance when I do this on the East Coast. If we go down to the Black Sea all the way along here and we go all the way up to Estonia, we're talking about a distance that is roughly equivalent to the, uh, to the distance between Boston and Atlanta. Okay, so we're talking about a massive front. We're talking about an incredible amount of area. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of villages and millions upon millions of people. And the reason why I say this is that this is different than the Western Front. So June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, which was the German invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, the non-aggression pact that was supposed to hold for 10 years held for, I believe, under two. Um, the Soviet Union was caught almost entirely off guard. There are some historians who claim that actually there were those in, uh, in the Soviet high command who did know that there was an invasion coming, but that they didn't want to believe it, and that Stalin had some idea, but he also just didn't want to admit to the fact that there was a massive invasion coming that he couldn't quite deal with. In any case, on June 22nd, three million German troops supported by approximately 500,000 Allied Axis troops, uh, Axis troops allied with Germany, uh, poured over the border, uh, and in short order, were able to press eastward as far as Leningrad, Moscow, and in 1942 to Stalingrad. For the purpose of this talk, what's of particular importance here is that there were four Einsatzgruppen, A, B, C, and D, and an Einsatzgruppe is uh, a task force. And these consisted of fairly small units of individuals who were devoted to locating Jews, rounding them up and disposing of them. So here is a major difference between the Holocaust in Western Europe and even the Holocaust in Poland, to some degree, and the Holocaust here in the former Soviet Union. What the Einsatzgruppe were supposed to do and what they were ordered to do was to trail behind the front, locate Jews in villages, and they were supposed to liquidate them. This was the order that was given at first. The one Einsatzgruppe that was particularly effective at this was Einsatzgruppe A here, which operated in the Baltics. At the Holocaust Museum, uh, we actually have something called uh, the Jaeger Report, which was filed by Commander Karl Jaeger. On uh, December 1st, 1941, he was able to report to his superior that his particular section within uh, that, that his uh, his group had managed to liquidate 137,300 and 
46, 46 people from July 2nd, 1941 to November 25th, 1941. Of those 136, 137,000 people, roughly 136,000 of them were Jews. Estonia by this point was supposed to be Judenfrei or Jew-free. Um, he and Einsatzgruppe A were more enthusiastic, more effective, more thorough, horrifically, than in Einsatzgruppe B, C, or D. In B, C, and D, they all began to report back that the immediate liquidation of Jews and of others who were targeted, but primarily Jews, was an ineffective way of trying to deal with what they termed the Jewish problem. Uh, people on the ground claimed that it was of more use to have Jews used as labor, that it was a bad use of materials to try and hunt down every individual Jew, that there was some resistance in some areas, and that overall it was not a doable project. And often what we pointed to was the success, so to speak, of Einsatzgruppe A in making the Baltic region essentially uh, liquidated of all Jews. It's estimated that between these four Einsatzgruppe, uh, they were able to liquidate two million people, um, 1.3 million of whom were Jews. And almost all of this took place by the end of 1942, but really uh, during the summer of 1941. And then there was a brief lull during the fall into the winter. And then from 1942 until, in the, uh, until the summer of 1942, that's when most of the killing happened. And something to take note of here is that the killing that did occur usually occurred on site. That is, more often than not, what would happen is you would have a, a unit reach a village. They would identify who the Jews were. And they would march them off to a site very nearby, and they would shoot them. There would be no deportation. There would be no bringing them to camps or to ghettos. Now. During the brief lull from the end of the fall until the beginning of the winter, especially in the southern regions, when there was some confusion over, well, we can't exactly do a full liquidation. What do we do with all of these Jews? Then there were some Jews who were rounded up. And also after the uh, uh, early summer of 1942, there were more Jews rounded up. But the usual story was is that you would have individuals who would be Jews who were rounded up and shot very near to where they lived. Why is this important? Because the local populations often knew about this. And by often, I mean pretty much always. Um, there's a, a group that works out of Paris. Um, some of you may have heard of them. Uh, it, it's called Jihad in Unum. It's headed by Father, Father Patrick Dubois. He wrote a book called Holocaust by Bullets. And one of the major things that his group does is they go to all of these villages throughout the area of the former Soviet Union where killings occurred, and they interview people. And according to one of their main researchers, who I've known for a while, he says that they haven't gone to a village yet where they haven't been able to find somebody who knew something. That is, all of these villages, there were people who knew what happened. They just didn't say anything about it for years and years and years, partly because nobody asked them and partly because they really didn't want to volunteer that information. It's less than pleasant, and it often included uh, misdeeds by locals towards the Jews, which nobody wanted to talk about. But we'll get to that later. Um, so once again, I want to impress upon you, we're talking about millions of people. We're talking about massive territories. We're talking about a very fast-moving front line. Um, and we're talking about killings on site. 
more often than not, not rounding people up and bringing them to ghettos, though that does happen too. Yes? Uh, answer, uh, A, were they aided by local people from the Volks? Uh, the short answer is yes. Mostly from where? Um, it depends, well, mostly from where. Uh, where the killings occurred, uh, a, a good example would be in, in uh, Riga, for example, and in Vilnius. Uh, there were usually local police uh, officers who were more than willing to aid with identifying Jews and helping to liquidate them. Um, and that is an issue which is still particularly contentious in those areas today. And it's something that the Holocaust Museum has been trying to work on to try and bring more attention to those. But under, as you can understand, uh, that's not a history that the individuals in those areas particularly want to deal with. I can come back to this later for those who would like to see the big map. This is by no means a comprehensive map of killing sites in the northern of our two sections. And this is basically Einsatzgruppe A and B and maybe a little bit of C here towards the bottom. And here's Kiev, and I'm going to talk about this extensively as a test case here tonight uh, for what happened in Babi Yar. Um, The Holocaust Museum has a research division that is devoted to compiling an encyclopedia of camps and ghettos. Uh, the first sweep, so to speak, of their research found approximately 10,000 killing sites. Uh, now they're up to 42,000. And you might wonder, how is it possible that there are that many? And the reason why is because this includes everywhere where there was a killing. So this includes areas where there were tens of thousands of killings. This includes areas where there were a couple of killings. Um, I think probably the biggest takeaway here is that, well, if you look at the map, you can see that there's a large concentration from Smolensk and westward, right? So this area in Russia, you're not going to see as many killing sites. And the reason for that is simple. It just wasn't occupied for as long. That, that's the primary reason why. And also because Jews were more successfully evacuated and everybody was more successfully evacuated out of the more eastern areas. The farther east you went, the more likely it was that somebody was be able to be evacuated uh, away from the Nazi onslaught. This is the southern area. And here's where you see a much larger number of killing sites. And so just for reference, uh, you know, we're talking here, basically, this is Ukraine pretty much, and Belarus up here, right? Poland is where it says Greater Germany, and this here is Russia, from like Rostov, basically, and east and to the north. Okay, um, I think this is particularly relevant today since we just had a major, major commemoration uh, of the massacre at Babi Yar, which is a ravine currently in what is now Kiev, um, and this was the single largest killing site um, over a short period um, in the former Soviet Union. 33,000 Jews were killed in two days here. This is not to say that there weren't other killing sites that had more killings, just that it usually it was over a longer period of time. And also at this killing site, one of the things that made it particularly difficult to flesh out the details later on is 
the killings that occurred at Bobby Yard, September 29th, September 30th of 1941, that wasn't the only, those were not the only killings that took place there. Over the ensuing years, there were a number of other killings that took place to the point where it's estimated, though it's really not known, that roughly 150,000 people were buried at Bobby Yard. But the initial killing was 33,000 uh, Jews. Now I want to talk about that a little bit. So there are a lot of photos that I could have shown you of this, but I figured we would uh, not go for the grotesque as much as possible. Um, we have those two. Uh, you can imagine, and you've probably seen some of the photos, they're horrific. Um, these were some of the few things. Go ahead. I will go exactly into that. That's, I know it seems impossible, right? How do you gather 33,000 people in two days? I'll explain exactly how they did it um, right here. Okay. So we're talking about a very short timeline here at first. The Nazis reach Kiev, well, occupy Kiev September 19th. They take power then. Five days later, partisans, or at least a nascent partisan group, destroyed Nazi headquarters, just part of the city center through bombings. As an immediate retribution, Jews were blamed and were ordered to assemble the following day on September 28th, ostensibly for resettlement. And this is the order that was given, and this is the answer to your question. This is how they were assembled. So here on the right, we have this in Ukrainian, and these were posted throughout the city. And I think there's a misspelling here, but I'll read it anyway. All Jews living in the city of Kiev and its vicinity must come to the corner of Nolnikova and Toktorivska. I know that's misspelled there somewhere. Um, near the cemeteries by 8 o'clock on the morning of Monday, September 29th, 1941. They are to bring with them documents, money, valuables, as well as warm clothes, underwear, etc. Why would they be telling them to bring that? To give them the illusion that they were going somewhere. They weren't. There was absolutely no intention to bring them anywhere. The other reason why is because, well, if they bring out their valuables with them, after they're gone, somebody can take them. Somebody's being whoever had just murdered them. Any Jews not carrying out this instruction who are found elsewhere will be shot. Any civilian entering apartments left by the Jews and stealing property will be shot. So you might be asking yourself, why did they just gather, right? I mean, hindsight being 2020, if you know that this is what's going to happen to you, you're gathered and then you're shot, why would you gather? And the answer is that they didn't know they were going to be shot. This was very new at the time. Word had not reached the Jews in Kiev that this is what the Nazis were doing. This is how they found out. So over two days, September 29th to September 30th, Einstein's group of seas slaughtered 33,771 Jews at Babi Yar. How do we know that it's exactly that many? Because the Germans took meticulous note. They, took, they had very, very meticulous records of exactly how many people were killed. That's part of the reason how we know. Uh, there also, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, there was a post-war invest, well, during the war and post-war, an investigative committee by the Soviet Union, which was rather expansive, surprisingly expansive actually, and way more expensive than anything that was done in the West. And by the West, I mean the United States and Western Europe, to determine what types of crimes were committed by uh, the Germans, against whom, how much property was destroyed, and part of it was to determine exactly how many people were killed. Um, which is something that they were never quite able to do. So subsequently to this, subsequent to this, Bobby Yar became a mass killing site for years, for the next two years of German occupation. Tens of thousands of Jews, Roma, you might know them as gypsies, the proper term is Roma. Uh, communists and Soviet POWs were murdered there. 
Again, the number that's usually used for how many people were killed in total is roughly 100 to 150,000. Nobody really knows. August 18th, 1943, so a couple of years later, the Nazis begin to clean up, cover up the operation at Bobby Yar. Why now? The answer is simple, they were losing the war. Yes? Sorry to interrupt, no, maybe you'll address this later, but I'm curious to, uh, if you have any numbers of um, disabled people who were also exterminated. At Bobby Yar, I don't have an answer for that one, I'm afraid. That one I don't know. Uh, although these task I can't- were they also were they also tasked with Targeting disabled people, yeah, because I can tell you for sure that in Kiev, because we had a researcher who was working on this over this, uh, well, over the spring at the Holocaust Museum. Uh, one of the more tragic stories is they went to a hospital and they just slaughtered everybody there. But those people weren't brought to Bobby Yar, and it was partly pragmatic. Um, you didn't want to bring them out; it was just too much trouble to do so. Um, okay, so by August eighteenth, nineteen forty-three, they start to cover up what they did. Why? Because they were losing the war and they knew that all of this was going to be found out thereafter. So they try their best to make it seem as if mm, nothing really happened here. There wasn't a mass liquidation of Jews and others. September 29, 1943, 325 forced laborers, and I'll talk more about them in a bit, who were involved in this cleanup revolted, only 14 of whom survived and were able to talk about this thereafter. They talked about this to the Soviet Commission of the Soviet Extraordinary Commission for the Investigation of Fascist uh, Crimes, and it's a much longer title than that, and I can never remember the full title. It's about 30 words. But that's basically what they did, is they investigated fascist crimes. They were able to tell exactly what happened at Bobby R and how, how there were multiple layers of sites, and it's part of the reason why uh, they were so keen on exhuming it later on. And on November 6, 1943, the Red Army has liberated Kiev. And thereafter, the investigation begins on what exactly it is that happened here and to whom. This gives you a rough idea of what we're talking about with Baba Yar. And again, this is in Kiev now. You can go to it. Um, it's greener, uh, but, and the contours are a little bit different, but it's there. It's not hard to get to. You can take the metro and walk out there in a couple of minutes. Uh, and I'll show you some of my photos from there later on, well, one photo really. So this is going to be a major theme, uh, not only at Baba Yar, but at all of the killing sites. And there are multiple layers of plunder. Here, soldiers from the Einsatzgruppe that just dealt with the liquidation of Jews at Baba Yar um, are going through the remains and taking whatever they want to take, valuables, clothes, whatever. After they leave, locals will come and will do the same thing. This is a common theme throughout the killing sites in Eastern Europe, where first those who did the liquidation will plunder the, plunder the Jews, and thereafter the locals will probably do so as well. The story is not just a story of shootings on site, though. Again, like I said, from the end of the fall of 1941 until the winter of 1942, especially in the southern region, there's a lull because the Einsatzgruppe are not capable of simply liquidating all the Jews, and they don't think that it's a particularly effective way of dealing with what is considered to be uh, the Jewish problem, so to speak. And so what a lot of them do is rather than shoot them, they round them up, and they transport them to ghettos. And as you can see, most of the ghettos are more towards the west rather than the east. 
And the story here is that often these ghettos would eventually either be liquidated or they would be abandoned and those uh, inhabitants who were left would often be brought west or they would have to fend for themselves or they would be destroyed when the Germans left. Uh, again, so just geographically here, this is Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus roughly, and Ukraine here, all right? So we're not talking about Russia so much when we're talking about ghettos. We're talking about the borderland, the pale of settlement. Um, um, I'll talk some more about Jewish victimhood. Um, So when we were talking about Jewish victims, I don't think I actually gave a number. And the reason why is because it depends on what borders we're talking about. And you will not find two historians who have the same number. Um, the highest number that I've seen is by a, a Russian historian by the name of Ilya Altman, who says that 2.5 million Jews in the former Soviet Union were liquidated during the Holocaust. Uh, the number that you most often see is somewhere around 2 million. Again, if we're taking 5.5 to 6 million as the total number of Jews who were killed, this is not an insignificant number by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I would say that actually the argument could be made that this is the primary story of what happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. And it's not a story that's often known. I follow the Soviet POWs because 3.3 million Soviet POWs were killed during the Holocaust. Uh, the number that's usually given, the numbers that are used by the Holocaust Museum, and again, you find different numbers from different sources, is a total of 5.7 million uh, Red Army soldiers were taken prisoner, and 3.3 million, roughly, were killed. And when I say they were killed, I don't mean that they were killed in action. I mean they were actually taken prisoners of war and died thereafter. They never made their way back. Um, why did they die and how did they die? So the Nazis used a bit of a trick here. Uh, they claimed that because the Soviet Union had never ratified the 1929 Geneva Convention on how you should treat prisoners of war and had never committed to the 1907 Hague uh, Convention on the Rules of War that the Nazis didn't have to treat Soviet prisoners of war with any decorum whatsoever. They could do whatever they wanted. Um, this was counter to the general norms of warfare at the time. Uh, but just to give you an idea of how they looked at Soviet POWs as opposed to how they looked at POWs from Western Europe, so like I said, roughly 3.3 million out of 5.7 million died. The number that the Holocaust Museum has for uh, British and American prisoners of war, there were roughly 230,000 prisoners of war from Britain and America. About 8,000 of them died in captivity. So we're talking about monumentally different numbers. How did they die? Why weren't they, say, put to work? They were put to work. The problem is that at first they were given a ration of approximately 2,200 calories per day. And soon that was dropped to 800 calories per day. And this is during uh, even winter months when they were supposed to be working all of the daylight hours. Um, you can imagine what happened. Uh, famine, disease, and something that's not often talked about, uh, cannibalism. Uh, was something that ran rampant through these camps. And the thing is, is when we say camps, we're really just talking about pens more often than not. Um, in Belarus, one of the primary ways in which they were housed is that they would have 
poles that would be stuck into the ground and there would be a covering put on top and that's it, no walls. And this is how they were supposed to survive during the winter months. Their winter clothing often would be taken by German soldiers because German soldiers didn't have great winter clothing and usually Soviet soldiers had better winter clothing, though not for long. There was a decree that was issued on September 8th, 1941, which made it clear to uh, Wehrmacht soldiers, Wehrmacht being the, the German army, that uh, shooting Soviet uh, Red Army soldiers in the field, even if they'd been captured, was acceptable. This is not the same rules of warfare that they had on the Western Front. When Soviet POWs would be transported in trains, often it would be done with the open air rushing through. Uh, they weren't necessarily closed train cars. So, for example, when they were transporting uh, POWs from the Baltic regions, from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, into the interior uh, of, of uh, what was controlled by Germany, they estimated that somewhere between 30 to 75 percent of everybody on every train car would die before they actually were able to reach their destination. I'm mentioning this because, and this is an issue that I've run into frequently, uh, when I've tried to work out in the area of the former Soviet Union, it is impossible to, or difficult rather, to talk about the Holocaust in this region if you don't talk about this. This is, this is a story that's known there, and this is something where if you don't mention it, the question is, well, why aren't you talking about what happened to the Red Army soldiers? After all, Millions of them died, and they died in the defense of the homeland. So it's the reason why I include this here. And again, I think part of the thing that I'm trying to impress upon you is that this is an interconnected story. It has to be. Um, and one of the things which I think is ironic about this is that in these areas, they'll know this story. They won't know about what happened to the Jews. We might know something about what happened to the Jews in these areas. We usually don't know this story at all. This is completely new to us. I know that when I first heard about this, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. 3.3 million, I, I was astounded. Incidentally, if you were a Jewish Red Army POW, you had almost no chance of surviving. There are a few cases, though, of survival, and almost always it was due to uh, someone else in one of the POW camps who helped them survive, um, although in some cases, uh, some extremely intelligent individuals would on the spot claim that they were Muslim, which would help them survive, or that they came from some exotic area in the Soviet Union and that they weren't Jews at all. Uh, there's a few cases of that, but not very many. Um, something else that happened to Soviet POWs, which didn't happen so much to Jews from this region because the Jews were often shot, is they were experimented upon uh, extensively. See, these are some of the more benign photos that we have. They get fairly uh, gruesome and untoward. Um, but they, uh, Soviet POWs were used as test subjects extensively. Uh, they were seen as utterly expendable. Uh, some of the German doctors uh, preferred to use them because the Soviet Union encompassed a number of different ethnicities and areas, and so there was an ability to compare about what happens if you put tuberculosis in different ethnicities from within the Soviet Union. How would that turn out and other gruesome, horrific things? Um, so once again, to impress upon you that what was done here was not what was done in Western Europe. It's a totally different story.
It wasn't just soldiers. There was a standing order that was put out from the middle of September of 1941 that uh, commissars attached to military units were supposed to be shot on sight. And there was a lot of confusion at the lowest ranks of the German army what that meant because a lot of Germans interpreted commissar to mean Jew. They didn't understand, so when you say commissar, does that mean, because they assumed that all commissars were Jews, which was incorrect, very incorrect. But the way they interpreted it more often than not was not necessarily that all commissars should be shot, but that all Jews should be shot, and that the two were often overlapping as categories. Be that as it may, though, uh, there were a great many number of uh, people who were shot for being commissars and for being communists, uh, and for no other reason but that. Um, Commissars. Commissars were political attaches to units who were supposed to provide propaganda and political support, and uh, they were specifically targeted by uh, edict from uh, uh, one of the edicts that was sent out to the Einsatzgruppe and to the Wehrmacht, actually, too. Um, when I first saw this, I assumed that this was a murder of Jews. It wasn't. These were communist functionaries who were lined up and shot. They might well have been Jews, but they were shot specifically for being communists and no other reason. The reason why we don't know the date is because we only have the photo and we can estimate that it must have happened before the end of September, but that's about all we know about it. The Soviet Roma. So again, uh, when we say Roma, the term you're probably more familiar with is gypsy. It is the incorrect term. The correct term is Roma. Um, it is extremely difficult to attach numbers to the Roma uh, for a couple of reasons. So one of the facets of Roma culture is that you have two primarily, you have two major strands. You have itinerant Roma and you have sedentary Roma. Sedentary Roma usually are situated around a certain area and they don't move much. Itinerant ones do move. Now, a lot of the Nazi propaganda that was aimed at the Roma claimed that, well, they're moving about, they're spreading disease, they're spreading horrible ideas, they're race mixing, etc. So the itinerant ones are the ones we want to get. Ironically and horrifically, the ones who were more likely to be swept up in these killing actions were the sedentary Roma. And by sedentary, we mean the ones who were just staying in a certain area. They were massacred almost wholesale. The itinerant ones had a much better chance of survival. A lot of them were able to flee into the woods. A lot of them were partisans. Um, there are actually some sections of itinerant Roma who considered uh, living under the Soviet regime during the 20s and 30s to be much worse than what happened. Uh, than the Nazi onslaught, mostly because they were, able to, they were able to escape the Nazi onslaught more successfully. And when we talk about Soviet Roma, we're talking about Roma throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, there are still Roma throughout Russia, through in Latvia, and it's, they're, they're still there today. Um, the number that's often given for how many Soviet Roma were uh, massacred is usually between 30 to 35,000. But again, and I want to impress this upon you because maybe I haven't done this up until this point, exact numbers for any of this is incredibly difficult to determine. Almost always, you are never going to find two historians who have an exact number that they give for almost anything. If you look at the Soviet investigative materials, 
you will find, and this is just a fun little fact, I guess, that the numbers that are reported at the local level are not the same that are reported at the regional uh, level all too often, and all too often are not necessarily the same that are reported at the state level. There's a lot of information that gets lost in, trans in the transfer of, of, how, of what the numbers of victims are supposed to be going up to the top and then back to the bottom. So exact numbers, I know that probably everybody likes them and wants them, too difficult. It's, it's just not possible, more often than not. How do you use things like census records? I know that those can also be very uh, Census records have been used to estimate. That's how a lot of these estimates come about, actually, is through census records and how many people were there beforehand. So, for example, with the Roma, it's impossible. Census records are often borderline useless, um, especially because, and another fun little fact, after the war, Roma would often, who were swept up by the Soviet census, would often claim that they were older than they actually were. Now, why do you think they would do that? Yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't just the Roma who did this. A lot of individuals did this because the older you were, the more likely you were to get your pension. So the census numbers, even from after the fact, are sketchy at best. And just Soviet citizens. Um, and this is something which did happen throughout uh, Europe. Um, all too often, um, when the Wehrmacht or when Einsatzgruppe would sweep through an area, they would kill individuals who they suspected of being partisans, or there would be a vengeance action against something that had happened to a comrade who had died in the field, and it was simply taken out on a local populace. And I would recommend to you, if you want the best example of the Soviet understanding of what this was, there's a movie that came out in 1985. It's called Come and See. Um, it's by most film and I think whatever the Belarusian equivalent was. And it's the story of when the Wehrmacht sweeps through one village in Belarusia and it's one of the few times where you actually see in the Soviet period um, murder of Jews uh, by, by the Nazis. But it also shows the murder of a number of Soviet citizens. And it's important to then this is the memory. This is the memory in this area of what happened in this area when the Germans came. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It's a very difficult watch. But if you want to get an idea of what the recollection and what the images of what happened to Soviet citizens during this time, come and see 1985 fellow Russian film. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Idis Yeah, exactly. Um, another group that probably definitely needs to be mentioned are the Ostarbeiters, which just means East, uh, East workers, those from the East. Um, somewhere between 3 million and 5.5 million uh, individuals from the former Soviet area, from the Soviet Union, were brought from the former Soviet Union to Germany and to areas of Poland to work as slave labor. And most of them were very young, under the age of 16. Uh, half of them were women. And at first, the way that they were brought in is that there would be a placard put in the center of town. This was in Kiev at first. And there would be these images of happy people in Germany working with food, with clothing, uh, well taken care of. And the claim was, come and work in Germany because life is much better there. 
And so at first about 100, 125,000 Ukrainians went to go work. And they were able to send back postcards and messages to their kin who were still in Ukraine about what was happening. That was heavily censored, but still word got back. Thereafter, it was increasingly more difficult to get volunteers to go and work as slave labor in Germany. And what happened thereafter is the age for recruitment was lowered to as low as 12. And individuals were simply taken from Ukraine and from other areas, but mostly Ukraine, in Eastern Europe and brought to Germany to work as slaves. Not all of them came back. Um, one of the resources that we have at the Holocaust Museum is something called the International Tracing Service, which in very brief is a series of uh, cards whereby you can trace where these workers started, where they worked, who they worked for, what it is they did, and if they made it back. And for a lot of these workers, repatriation was a major problem because once they came back to the Soviet Union after the war, if they came back, they were looked at with suspicion. They were looked at as Westerners and that they'd been exposed to Western values. And a lot of them would then be put in camps in the Soviet Union, even if they survived this, but they would never be trusted tr fully again. Um, this badge here is what they were forced to wear to identify themselves as Eastern workers. And you would find them working in factories. You would find them working on farms. You would find them, uh, some of them, some, some of the working conditions were not that bad. Some of them were horrific. Uh, but again, three to five and a half million. I want to return to Bobby Yar uh, as a test case for the Holocaust in history and memory. Now, I mentioned Bobby Yar because it was the largest mass killing action over a short period of time. Again, 33,000. In Rumbola, uh, in outside of Riga, it was 25,000. At Bogdanovka, over a period of a couple of months, it was something like 48,000. And this type of this type of horror was repeated over and over again. But Bobby Yar, uh, more than anywhere else, was probably what was looked at as the prototype of what happened when the Germans managed to conquer an area and what it is that they did with their Jews. And for a long time, there was silence about this. Um, you saw previously, I'll go back to it, um, right? So this is, right? This is what brought all the Jews to the center of Kiev, where they were thereafter transported, right? So the Soviet Investigative Commission, which I talked about before, they knew about this. And they drafted, and I wish I had a copy. No, that's not it. So they drafted a report in December of 1943 on the basis of that and on the basis of witness testimony. And the draft version of what exactly it is that happened at Bob Ayer is as follows, according to the investig investigative committee. Commission, rather. The Hitlerist bandits committed mass murder of the Jewish population. They announced that on September 29, 1941, all the Jews were required to arrive to the corner of Milnikova and Dorozhitska streets and bring their documents, money, and valuables. The butchers marched them to Babayar, took away their belongings, and then they shot them. That was the draft version. This is the version that was published. The Hitlerist bandits brought thousands of civilians to the corner of Milnikova and Dorozhitska streets. The butchers marched them to Babi Yar, took away their belongings, and shot them. And that's it. A key facet here was left out. And this is something that was going to be replicated over and over and over. The fact that Jews were the primary victims was left out of the narrative. And it would be that way for a very long time. 
And the thought process among the Soviet hierarchy, Stalin in particular, was as follows, is that this is a national tragedy. We cannot identify Jews as the primary victims because if we do that, maybe not everybody is going to go along with this project. This is going to have to be depicted as a tragedy for everybody. And if we just focus on Jews, we're going to lose support. And not only that, it didn't just happen to the Jews, even though the Jews were the ones who were targeted. And so, in official records, you will not find any specific mention of anything happening to Jews in official histories, even in these investigative reports. How did people know that anything did happen specifically to Jews? There were a few ways. So, even prior to when Yevgeny Yedlushenko wrote his seminal Babi Yar poem after visiting the site in 1961, in newspapers during the war, they would report the names sometimes of who was killed, or they would show photos of who was killed. And everybody knew that those people were Jews, but nobody said anything about it. Nobody said a word about it, but it was known. It was understood that it had, it had to be Jews. People would talk outside of official circles, and everybody knew that it was the Jews who were primarily targeted. As the Red Army advanced on Berlin, they came across sites of mass horror, and they knew that it was the Jews who were primarily targeted. There were also Jews within the Red Army. 500,000 Jews fought for the Red Army during the, the war. Uh, 300,000 of them came back. They talked about what it is they saw. And for a lot of them, they didn't realize anything that was going on until they saw the horrors themselves at concentration camps or, in some cases, at killing sites. That being said, for the most part, this just left the national narrative in the Soviet Union until Yetvushenko wrote his Babi Yar, until Shostakovich in his 13th Symphony claims that he was inspired by what happened at Babi Yar. And it was around this time where Nikita Khrushchev, and I won't read through all of this because it's rather extensive and I think I'm running up against time a little bit here. Okay, we're good. Um, the long, short version here is that what he's talking about is that Babi Yar occurred, and it didn't occur to just Jews. Why should Jews single themselves out for being victims? They're not the only ones. It happened to all kinds of people. More non-Jews than Jews were actually killed, according to him, at Babi Yar. So it's actually against uh, proper Soviet consciousness to uh, focus only on one nationality. After all, the Soviet Union is supposed to be about all nationalities under one Soviet banner. So this was a problem that they knew they had on their hands. And at the moment, what they were doing is they were simply trying to sink into the subconscious. Every now and then, something would bubble up. There would be uh, unofficial writings through the underground press, Samistad, uh, where there would be awareness made amongst usually intellectual circles about what it is that happened. But for the most part, this was a story that nobody knew in the former Soviet era. I just wanted to point out that uh, obviously this, this was also the fact that these works come out at that time after Stalin's death, where in the lead up to his death, there was an upsurge in anti-Semitism with the doctor's plot. Big time. So it's, it's no surprise that they, that they would happen then and not earlier. Yes. So yes, there's the doctor's plot. There's the anti-Cosmopolitan campaign when Cosmopolitan was just another word that they were using so primarily for Jew. So here is, is actually kind of criticizing it. The fact that they're discussing it at all is... Oh, it's a major... Absolute, no, you're absolutely right. It's it, At least it's being talked about. But again, uh, still not necessarily percolating down to the general public yet. That being said, finally, by 1976, there's a monument that's erected at Babi Yar. And for those of you who read Russian, you can see here, right, who's not mentioned? Jews. 
All it says is that more than 100,000 citizens of the city of Kiev uh, and also uh, prisoners of war were massacred by the fascist invaders here at Babi Yar. But not a thing is mentioned here about Jews, right? Finally, by 1991, uh, more recognition was made. We have a menorah. We have uh, specific placards that mentioned exactly how many Jews were killed. But this didn't happen during the Soviet period. It had to happen after the Soviet Union fell. And it's more than just simply what was happening with Stalin at the end of, of the war and the doctor's plot and cosmopolitanism in the 1960s. Also politically, it had a lot to do with the Soviet attitude towards Israel, uh, towards trying to keep the refuseniks in the country, and towards a number of other factors. Regardless, this is a story which wasn't discussed really at all until 1991, and since then still has had very little fanfare. Very few people know the story of the Holocaust in this area, people in, in the area of the former Soviet Union. This is new history to very, very many of them. And the reason why is because this simply wasn't talked about for decades after the fact. Why would they know about it? How could they know about it? Who would be teaching it, right? If nobody's aware of it, how is it going to be, how is it going to be communicated? And so one of the things that I do um, this is the domestic side of, of, of outreach. But one of the things that I do also is I go to uh, the former Soviet Union, primarily up until now, uh, Russia and the Baltics, and Ukraine, to a lesser extent for me. We have others who do that. To try and interest researchers in this as a topic uh, for investigation. And the reason why is because the archival material is there. It just hasn't been explored nearly as much as it could be. Um, it's a story that could easily be told, and it can be told as part of a wider narrative. It very easily could. Sorry? Did you that? Yeah, I did. So um, it's a strange place, Bobby Yard, now. Um, you can't see it, and then I have a few other photos that I might have on my phone and I can show later, actually. Um, but there's a, a bunker area near there which is littered with graffiti and, and broken bottles. Um, and uh, I remember I was there with a friend of mine and you would walk around and a lot of people still didn't really know what, what the area was. Even though there were monuments everywhere, they just, they didn't really know. They thought it was kind of a park and that there were, they don't know what this is. They don't know that this is a Jewish symbol, for example. Uh, Go ahead. I imagine the answer is no, but is there anything taught in the schools about the Holocaust and this former Soviet Union? Not much. Um, what I've been told is uh, there might be a passing mention, and that's about it. Um, a mention of Jews or Holocaust, of the, the Holocaust, mm -hmm. at all. Jews get mentioned. The G you will find mention of Jews, of course, but I mean there are Jews still in the former Soviet Union. Uh, but the Holocaust is part of the curriculum. Is it's not it's simple as that. Um, Oh, no, they'll talk about what happened to Red Army soldiers, but they're not going to talk specifically about what happened to Jews. No. No. So part of my mission is to try and get graduate students out in, in the area to study the subject. It's particularly difficult when they don't know that the subject exists. Or if they are going to investigate it, it's going to be at a level that would be remedial compared to what researchers here often do. 
Um, so we're starting from a, a very uh, low level, and I hope you understand why why that is, because nobody was talking about this for decades and decades and decades for political reasons and also out of prejudice. Also what? Out of prejudice as well. Um, and again, this monument, there are monuments now throughout Eastern Europe in different areas, some of which are quite extensive, some of which are nothing more than a, a stick uh, or a plank that's been erected and stuck in the ground with a small placard in front of it. And nobody, none of the locals know what it is usually. And there's a lot of areas that have not been commemorated. And there's a whole debate over whether it's worth going over all these areas and making sure that every single one is commemorated. And there's a whole other debate having to do with should we try to uh, exhume these areas because there's a whole kettle of fish, so to speak, with uh, Jewish burial rites and what you can and can't do with bodies. Yes? Who is behind having these um, erected? There's a number of different groups. Um, some of the groups are local. Um, some of the groups are Jewish groups uh, nationally in these areas, and some of them are from outside of the areas, from Israel and some from here. Uh, but there are local groups there that actually do this too. So this is the time for any questions you might have, anything that was unclear, anything that you want to see again. And uh, thanks for coming. Yes? Well, I guess you know, the last bit of discussion about education, I guess it's much more global, right, the Soviet Union, in terms of the various places, the various, um, the various new republics. And, and how it is that they're faring as they some of them become modern and dope, right? What it is that they choose to teach and what freedoms people have and what people are interested in, right? Has a lot to do with it. And yeah. and how they have a lots of other kettles to deal with. So I mean, they have access to the internet and they could read about these things, but I guess what's really hard is there's so much to do. So it's, it's unfortunate. I guess Chabad's been out there, right? Chabad's there now. You know, and um, it was recently uh, Rabbi who was severely injured. He was nine. Was it in Riga, Kiev? It was in Ukraine somewhere. He was Israel to be taken care of. And the local Chabad leader there said, no, no, they were targeting him as a Jew. I mean, he was dressed religiously, but they were after his money. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's. So, in these areas, all too often, and I'll try to speak as diplomatically as I can about this. Um, you will find instances of what I would consider to be anti-Semitism, and the local Jewish populations will claim that it's not anti-Semitism. And the reason why is because very often it is very much in their interests to not depict this right. as an anti-Semitic action. Right. And so they'll say, ah, it, was, it wasn't about the fact that it was a, a, a rabbi right. or a Jew. suggest that it wasn't, but be, yeah. obviously it looks like a very Jewish person when you're dealing with a Chabad so true. Um, so what is it? Why is it in the interest? Because they're of the belief that they want to be more a part of the nation than they want to be a part of something that's separately Jewish, mm -hmm. especially uh, in some areas now where it is. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other issues going on nationally. So it is determined more often than not that for the local Jewish population, it is better to simply sweep it under the rug than to try and 
declare that this is anti-Semitic and that something needs to be done about it. The feeling is, is that if you do that, it's going to bring attention to you that you don't want. Not now. It's going to bring more anti-Semitism. That's or, the belief. Or, so um, that's the diplomatic version of that situation in a lot of areas. Any other questions about anything at all? Yes. I was just curious if you could speak about how the post-Soviet new nationalist narratives might be shaping scholars' interest or disinterest in investigating these topics, or um, maybe their access to materials, or um, willingness or unwillingness to look closely. Great question. So in Russia, there is one historian, who I won't name, uh, who has access to a lot of the KGB material that's relevant to what happened during the Holocaust. And you have to go through him in order to get any of that material. And he effectively has his hand on the faucet of what is allowed and what is not. So Russian national, sorry, nationalism in the area dictates very often what materials can be looked at, what materials are not used, and how the story is told. So you're less likely to hear about local collaborators now in any of these regions, collaborators with the Nazis against Jews or against other populations uh, than you would be in past times, simply because uh, the memory of World War II primarily, but also in very small part the Holocaust is being used as a cudgel uh, against other nations. And the idea being that we were the two defenders, you were the collaborators, we didn't collaborate with anybody. That definitely did not happen here. So if you want to do that kind of an investigation, it's going to be very difficult to do that if you're a native to that area and intend to live there in the long term, especially if you want to be an academic there. It's going to be very difficult. So you have individuals out there who want to do the work, but it might be a little bit difficult to do it just at the moment. Yes. I was curious whether you'd gone to the Museum of Tolerance in Moscow yes. a few years ago. I was curious about your thoughts on how they present this narrative. Well, they have uh, that one area all the way. In. You've been there? Yes. Okay, so they have the one area in the back where they have World War II and what happened. Um, and it's more extensive than any other depiction of what happened to Jews uh, in the former Soviet Union dur during the Holocaust than anywhere else I know of on the planet, actually. It's more extensive than what we have at the Holocaust Museum, by far which is a more statement perhaps of how our permanent exhibit needs to be uh, revitalized more than anything else. Um, I, I came away incredibly impressed with that space, with what they've done with it. Um, it's also more state of the art than I thought a museum possibly could be. What would the, uh, I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to get an audience for this. They have a uh, ride at the beginning. They got like living statues and stuff. It squirts water at you. It rumbles. Starts with Genesis. Go ahead. Um, Did the Germans extend the persecution of gay men into the areas of the occupied Soviet Union? Can you talk about sure. that? Sure. So I didn't mention them. And the reason why I didn't mention them is because even though there's an order to liquidate homosexuals, um, it didn't often happen uh, because it, was, it would have taken more time to determine who was and who wasn't. And 
the thinking was is that there were a lot of other targets to deal with before dealing with that. It just wasn't an issue so much on the Eastern Front. So it did happen, but it was not nearly what you would have seen in Germany, for example. In Germany, homosexuals were targeted, they were rounded up. In the Eastern Front, not so much. Is there an order to the army? There was a general order, but I don't, it didn't specifically target homosexuals. Can I mention that right now at the Holocaust Center for Humanity downtown, there's the Nazi persecution of homosexuals exhibit from USHMM yeah. that addresses this issue in part. And what I've learned from that exhibit is that the Nazi persecution of homosexuals sprung primarily from the thought that the, I'm thinking of, of gay men as a threat the Reich as a threat to German manhood. So for that reason, it wasn't as essential for them or significant for them to persecute non-German gay men because they were not a threat to German mm. manhood. They were trying to get reproduction. But they do, like when they're in Amsterdam, they, there's a concerted effort to around a gay man. Different ethnicity. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a lot of the reason why. So I skipped over it. Uh, so again, uh, if there's anything that was unclear, so Slavs were seen as below uh, uh, Germanic peoples. Slavs, the idea was that they would be liquidated in the short to long term. And that was not the plan for Western Europe. Go ahead. Um. What was the interest of the Soviet Union in plowing up places like um, Treblinka? I think Treblinka was probably one of the first ones that they reached, so that there was no trace. Was that because they had had this relationship with Germany through the pact and they felt like they might be blamed somehow? What, what, what underlay? The mil their military's interest in doing that, completing these places up at the t at that time. Yeah. See, that's the thing is that it was it was not a consistent action that they did throughout the areas that they covered. So, for example, like a lot. I mean, a lot of the material, a lot of the material that we have at the Holocaust Museum is material that the Soviets gathered of what happened at 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 camps. So, so it's hard to know. I don't think to uniformly say there. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, Yes. So what was the Soviet Union is now 15 different countries, and many of them at odds politically and some militarily. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how those countries, and particularly Russia, have, have uh, co-opted both the victory and the victimhood of the war into their, their and made it their own, sometimes incorrectly? Sure. So, and I would say this from my Russian history background, Russia often considers itself to be uh, this bastion either against the East or against the West. As far as they're concerned, you know, they're the ones who stopped Napoleon. They're the ones who had to take the Mongol onslaught, otherwise it would have devoured all of Europe. And so in the Russian national narrative, the idea is Russia bore the brunt of the war. Russia was responsible more than any other country for winning the war. That being said, it was a Soviet effort, but it was Russia more than any other country. And as a result, um, it's our victory. Um, also in Russia, you'll find that there's more of a tie-in with 
the Soviets and, 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 and that government than you'll find, say, in Ukraine. Whereas in Ukraine, often you'll find uh, the notion that this was a fight against the Germans and this was a fight against the Soviets. We didn't want either of them occupying us. And so there were the, I mean, it's not necessarily seen as the Soviet liberators so much. Um, take Lithuania as another example. In Lithuania, there's this whole notion of the double occupation, right? So as far as Lithuania is concerned, it's first we got occupied by the Soviets. We didn't want any part of that. And then some of, us, some of them saw the Germans as liberators. But then they were occupied by the Germans, and then the Soviets came and occupied them again until the fall of the Soviet Union. And so in Lithuania, there's this notion that um, they got the short end of the stick both ways. They, did, they just couldn't win, that they were just this battleground that bigger powers were fighting over. Um, and that they contributed to both sides, and they did. So I would say that in each one of these areas, you're going to find a slightly different story, which makes this all the more problematic. But I would also say that in each of these republics, there is this narrative of World War II being this monumental task, the victory of World War II, this monumental task that was accomplished against the Germans. There is always that sentiment, and that it was the greatest event of the 20th century. Yes? Um, not quite off topic, but not exactly dealing with the area you're talking about. So um, I had family in Poland that was sent to Siberia probably in the fall of 41 or so, and they survived there. What was the interest? of the Soviets to take Jewish people, Poles, and send them so far away, and then later on, begin to repatriate them back to their country's origin, many of them, not all of them. Not all of them. A lot of them never made it back. Um, Polish officers uh, were targeted by the Soviets. Um, There's the Katyn massacre. There is the Katyn massacre, which, and this is just as an aside, I was on a train from uh, Petersburg to Moscow or maybe it was Moscow to Petersburg, I don't remember which way, uh, in June. And there was a history program on it, it was about Katyn. And it was talked about in the following terms. They were going over all of these atrocities that had been committed uh, by the Germans against the United Soviet peoples. And it said that none was worse than what happened at Katyn, where the Germans massacred 22,000 yeah, Polish officers. And I was on a train and I started laughing out loud because I thought this was, this was something we've dealt with already. I mean, the how we know that it was the Soviets who murdered these Polish officers is because we found the records in Moscow in the early 90s. They, we, we know that it, we've seen them. And now we're still going back and retelling the story. And it's because of what's happening in, in that region now. That's why, no other reason but that. And I, I laughed out loud and everybody looked at me and it was a very bad moment for me. Um, but why? Um, because, uh, the, I mean, the Poles were seen as a threat. The Soviets were more than happy to divvy up Poland at the beginning of the war, and it's something which is still a very contentious issue. You've heard recently um, th there were statements made by very high-ranking members of the uh, Russian government about how actually there wasn't really an agreement with Germany or it was only done in the interests of Russia, and it wasn't about doing anything bad to the Poles. Um, that, so that, that's still an issue which is unresolved. And it had been resolved, and now it hasn't been because of the recent strife between Russia and 
uh, most of its neighbors to the west. Yes, yet they're sending them to Siberia. They're not killing them there, right? So they're sending them to faraway places. Yes, they send them to civilians. work camps to set out the war. And again, not all of them come back. A lot of them do, not all of them do, but you know, they're displaced, <laughs> uprooted, and looked at with suspicion. They're not one of us. They're not Nashi, so to speak, for those of you Russian speakers. Yes? Is more explicit Holocaust denialism uh, an increasing problem, especially in the sort of mainstream media or higher education in these countries? Yes. The, the short answer is yes. Um, you, so I mean, something which you will never or very rarely see in this country is someone with uh, someone, someone get on a news program or someone with a voice say, oh, Holocaust didn't happen. It, I mean, you'll, you'll, it'll happen from time to time. In these areas, you will sometimes find individuals on major news programs who will claim uh, it was only a couple hundred thousand Jews who were killed or there wasn't really a Holocaust. It, it does happen. It is a problem. And nationalist movements um, in these areas are much more of a problem uh, than anything we have here. Um, and this is one which has been confusing to no end, how you have Russian Nazis. You would think that it would be a contradiction in terms. Um, the Aryan, uh, there, there is a growing contingent of uh, upset youth who join the Nazi uh, party there and demonstrate and do things which their forefathers of the Soviet Union would probably consider to be horrific. The short answer is yes, it's a problem. Any other questions whatsoever about any of it? Yes, please. Um. Last month, there was a big commemoration at Bobby R in Kiev, and it was uh, one of the bigger commemorations they've had there. I was wondering if you could just comment on the role of the local Jewish communities in these countries for raising these issues and trying to make the Holocaust a discussion. I would say that in Ukraine now, and especially around the commemoration of Bobby R, uh, now more than ever before, these issues are being raised and are being raised in the public consciousness. Um, the commemoration that they had brought together, I believe, Mayor Klitschko, um, representatives from uh, Ukraine, from Kievan local government, from Ukrainian national government. Uh, and the idea, as far as I understood it at least, is that they're going to build a massive new memorial. Um, and it's unclear as to exactly what it is they're going to focus on more than anything else. But it's going to be dedicated to the memory of Jews and others who were killed at Bobby Yar. And it's going to be something far more expensive than what they have. They think they're going to have a museum. They're going to have a larger monument. And it's something that's being talked about out in the open. And, I, and, and during the time I've worked on this project, I would say this is probably the most vociferous any country has been in that, in that region about commemoration of the Holocaust. So progress of the sorts. Yes? Question about Jews who were sent to Siberia. So is that um, I'm trying to figure out how that happened? Were they evacuated together with everybody else? Okay. Because everybody, and were, or were they put in different, were there special locations so that people would be Jewish people would be put in one place and everybody else somewhere else? Uh, Jewish poles would be evacuated with poles. They wouldn't be separated out necessarily. Other Jews uh, would be evacuated as Jews, and they wouldn't be necessarily evacuated to Siberia. They would be evacuated to Kazakhstan, or they would be evacuated to um, 
Tashkent or you know Central Asia or from where would they be immigrating specifically as Jews? From Poland and from Ukraine, and they would as many as could get east would get east, and they would be transported out separately from Ukrainians. Not necessarily. I mean, this here's the thing: this was not a well organized uh, retreat. This was run from the invaders as quickly as we possibly can. So often Jews would move together because they were together. There were Jewish communities. Um, but often it would just be whoever could get into a train car got into a train car. And you figured out where everybody should go once you got further east. But it was more about fleeing from what was coming than anything else. Yeah, but there weren't, there weren't a policy on the, to, to, to settle Jews separately in evacuation. Uh, no, not necessarily. But there was a Jewish autonomous region way, way out east in Birobajan, which Jews never went to, <laughs> if they could help it. Go ahead. Yeah, I can also say, and I, I mean, I know this because we have one testimony here at the Holocaust Center, so I'm sure it's particularly at least a slightly bigger story, that some of these evacuations took place before the invasion. And so the, yeah. because after the invasion in Poland, there was a lot of movement back and forth, mm -hmm. Jews were fleeing the, the Nazi zone, was the German zone to get to the Soviet zone, mm -hmm. and they thought it would be safer. And as soon as they got over the Soviet zone, hey, they were, yeah. they were aliens, and the aliens, so they were immediately... So, right, and this, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because this is part of the reason why Jews didn't evacuate also, is because do you want to leave home and just run into the Soviet zone and whatever happens to you happens to you? A lot of Jews decided that that was not necessarily a good plan just to simply throw their lot to the wind and hope that things in the Soviet Union where they didn't know anything or anybody would be better. So a lot of them thought, I'm better off staying here. And more often than not, they were wrong. Uh, but they couldn't have known that. Because again, nobody knew what was coming. Again, I, that's something that I hope was impressed upon you. Nobody understood exactly what was trailing behind the Wehrmacht once it came. Mm -hmm. They only found that out usually when it was too late. It was unprecedented. In the case of the, the testimony that we took, this gentleman who was deported as a child that saved his life because he then wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't there when he had Nazis. I saw another hand. Yeah. yeah. Could you repeat the name of the place in the East where you said the Jewish people want to stay away from? Biro Bijan. Thank you. A friend of mine has been trying to get me to go there for years, and I don't <laughs> want to do it. It's too far. Go ahead. So my dad and a friend of his um, escaped on a bicycle out of Lida just before it was turned into a ghetto. So that's in 41, about June of 41, or maybe a little bit after that. Um, but yet, they had Polish passports that were presumably marked as, as Jewish also. But yet, they they survived the war in Russia, being itinerants in various villages. Wow. Never sent to the front because they weren't Russian citizens, I guess. Odd story? Not. Being able to survive as itinerants behind the lines is odd. Not. Mm -hmm. No, that's odd. That's very. That's pretty odd. In villages, they said there were villages where they often were the only men who were there. They that I believe, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, because all the men are at the front. Right. So odd. Uh, odd that they were able to survive and nobody, nobody brought them to the authorities. No, no they were just wandering Not around. Yeah, that's Not so much wandering, but doing labor and stuff like that. Yeah, I would imagine that the locals knew that they were there and wanted somebody to work, and that's why they weren't reported because they were supposed to be reported. Yes. Do you know any, uh, any of any prominent stories of um, uh, Gentiles hiding Jews? Yes, tons of them. Absolutely, so uh, tons of them. Comparable to what we see in the, in the West, I guess. Uh, or more. Possibly more so, even. 
I think if you look at um, Yad Vashem's, what is it, Wall of Saviors, I can't remember exactly what it's called, uh, you'll find tons of them from Ukraine especially. Um, less so in the Baltic regions because most of the Jews were killed so quickly. Um, uh, but yes, you find plenty of cases. I think probably the greatest case is, uh, oh, um, Bishop Sheptitsky, who managed to save a great many Jews. Um, there, 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 there were cases. Yes. Why in Ukraine now is there a different attitude about remembering where you have the political figures, as you were saying, be part of remembrances? Why now, as opposed now? to, as opposed to pre, as opposed to yeah, before? As opposed to, as opposed to the last seven years. Because. Um, now, uh, there are some from outside Ukraine who are trying to uh, discuss uh, issues involving Ukrainian nationalists and, and certain things that happened during the Holocaust, which Ukraine at this point in time probably would not want to discuss. And so what they're doing is they're being very open about a lot of things, uh, much more so than before not necessarily about those other things which are being driven at by uh, outsiders. We'll go with outsiders as a catch-all. All right. Well, thank, thank you very much for coming for for this way. Thanks again to uh, the Holocaust Center for Humanity and to Jewish Studies. And thank you all for coming out on a dark, rainy night.